Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Sometimes just watching them eat every night makes me want to gouge my eyes out. Look, obviously imperialism was bad. Lotus eaters. Shouldn't kill people, steal their land, and then make them dance. Hateful is the dark blue sky. Vaulted o'er the dark blue sea. Death is the end of life. Ah, why should life all labor be? Welcome to history. Welcome to America. I mean, what are we going to do? Huh? Really? Nobody cedes their privilege. That's absurd. It goes against human nature. Hello and welcome to a very vacation-friendly episode of Still Watching. I'm a very senior writer, Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. And aloha, mahalo. Here we are, two white people here to talk to you about White Lotus. Uh, HBO's, uh, uh, I mean, I guess it's a whodunit, but it didn't really feel that way. We'll talk about all of that. But uh, a dive into class and privilege and race all set uh, on the beautiful shores of Hawaii. Uh, Richard, we are only doing one episode about White Lotus, but we wanted to make sure we talked about it because it's a show you and I both really quite enjoyed um so here we are yeah yeah no it's really like i think the best thing to be on tv almost this whole year i don't know i mean you know i just think i just i'm so on mike white's wavelength most of the time and like i watched the screeners of this like months ago and so have been kind of sitting on it you know um and because i was they gave us the last episode which they kind of don't often do yeah. Um, and I've just been so excited to watch it kind of take off um, in the week to week viewing, like just on social media and whatnot. It seems to really have struck a chord with people, other people as well, which I'm really happy about. Yeah, it's um, if you haven't seen it yet, we're going to be talking about the whole season, including the finale. So, like, please know that that is what is coming here. If you have not seen the finale yet or any of it yet, like we recommend it. We think it's great. It has our stamp of approval. Go watch it. And then you can come back and listen to us talk about it. And we're going to talk about sort of the series in general, Mike White in general, and then we'll get into the finale and the ending and how we feel like it all it all shook out. Um, and yeah, just to say that our schedules got a little funky this summer, but if they hadn't like we definitely would have done a whole season on this and we got a lot of people asking us why we weren't doing white lotus and just so you know we 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 had planned to it just didn't quite work out um yeah i just had to go to france for three weeks you know (laughs) so uh um you know richard living his white lotus life uh (laughs) over in france um but yeah and and so that's why i mean we also don't have 
I think any listener emails uh, because y'all didn't know we were doing this necessarily. Um, but of course you can always email us in future still watching pod at gmail.com. We love your emails, obviously. And we've got a couple other special episodes coming up uh, to flesh out the summer next week. We'll be Anthony Bresnikan will be on to talk about the Marvel series. What if, and, uh, and then Richard and I will be going on another retreat this time down under for nine perfect strangers, which is uh, airing on Hulu. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be doing, I think just a one-off episode about that. So send in your emails and questions about what if, or about nine perfect strangers. And then on the horizon beyond that, um, there's some questions about what's happening uh, with the podcast in the future. We'll get more into that later, but um, what's probably happening is we're probably diving into American crime story, colon impeachment, um, and for those of you who have been with us since the beginning, we started with an American crime story, didn't we, Richard? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we just can't stay away from America's great crimes. <laughs> <laughs> from Versace to impeachment. Um, so, so that's sort of what's up on the horizon. Uh, and impeachment is probably where this podcast will get back into the week, week to week rhythm, but we will, we'll be fleshing out the, the, the last month of summer, uh, with these little one-off episodes, starting here with White Lotus. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. I want to start, um, Richard, with with Mike White. You already said that you were someone who was on, felt like on a wavelength uh, with Mike White. Most people know him for um, either School of Rock, uh, you know, tremendously fun film he did. But I don't feel like School of Rock is really emblematic of like the Mike White ethos. And um, I would say something like Enlightened, uh, the short-lived critically beloved commercially slightly panned uh laura dern series uh you know when paired with this you kind of see more of what mike white is really interested in um and something that i when i interviewed jake lacy before um the season started uh and you can read that on vf.com um i was sort of digging into mike white to learn a bit more and there's couple you know several great profiles of him including a conversation he had with our own joy press but i because i'm so reality show ignorant i did not know that mike white is like a massive reality show fan is like a famous amazing race competitor Mm -hmm. with his dad Uh, yeah with his dad like this is a whole thing i am i am like really reality show ignorant but this is like a big thing for mike white and it makes a lot of sense when you watch white lotus or even something like enlightened and you're like yeah i can see how you can connect the dots from this to like our obsession with real housewives or whatever it may be uh so i was wondering i know richard you know at least more about reality shows than i do like do you see that connection between his obsession with that medium and his work yeah i think he's definitely really attuned to a certain type of personality that you find on reality shows and all, and it turns out makes great scripted content too, you know, um, uh, a sort of self-awareness about one's prowess, but no self-awareness about what makes someone annoying. You know, like you just see these reality show, you know, they're, they are characters essentially 
come on and just sort of bulldoze through things and be successful, you know, if it's a competition show or sort of stand out if it's like something that's more like housewivesy, um, but sort of blithely ignorant of what kind of effect they're having around uh, on people around them, you know, which is right. very close to what the White Lotus is about. And certainly Enlightened had characters like that, including the lead, Amy Jellico. Um Yeah, I think he's just an observer of people in a really shrewd way. And where I'm sure he finds entertainment and humor in the reality shows and maybe a little pathos, I think he kind of almost flips that equation for something like The White Lotus, which is funny and satirical, but I think is also profoundly sad. And uh, yeah. it, it really echoes his last film. He, he's he's done a lot of, or he's done several movies with the director, Miguel Arteta, um, where White will write the script and Arteta will, will direct it, like The Good Girl uh, with Jennifer Aniston years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and his most recent film, that collaboration was called Beatriz at Dinner with Salma Hayek, which people, if they if you liked White Lotus, you should really go and watch that movie if you haven't seen it, because it's very similar in tone and theme. Um, and it really feels like they're in a nice kind of dialogue with one another. So this whole sort of class tension and, you know, responses to social progress and awareness, you know, that's happened in the past 10 years or so really seems to be like something that's on Mike White's mind in a big way. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because obviously like, especially with white Lotus, I would say um, there is an interesting examination of, of like racial tensions, right? Because like predominantly the staff here at this resort is more diverse than the guests. Right. And, um, and and that is discussed and 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 also the optics are just there but when push comes to shove uh and i think you see this especially with the like kai storyline it feels like class is the ultimate decider of the the like sort of tribalism that we're seeing here would you say do you agree with that what do you think yeah i mean i think that you know i was talking about this with a friend the other day like the the whole situation with Kai and the robbery gone wrong that, you know, brings Nicole and Mark together again and, and sort of reunites the family in this kind of superficial but meaningful way. Yeah. Um, is such a tragedy for Kai and his family, you know, and, and I think it's really deliberate that the show, once we, we see him leave the resort, we, we never see him again. We, we, only, we, him we again. hear about him. Yeah. And I think that, you know, um, Paula, who is kind of existing in this, you know, in one circumstance when she's with, um, you know, Olivia and her family, she is the outsider. She is not, uh, you know, not the actual lesser, but sort of treated as such. And, you know, um, but then you see her dynamic with Kai and clearly she's the one who's like, no, I'm I have a whole life to get back to. I'm in college. Like, the, we're probably never going to see each other again, you know. Um, and then she kind of makes this errant bungle. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely setting class up as um the true sort of hierarchy, at least in the world of yeah. this show. I mean, especially the Kai stuff is so devastating. And like, it's one of several train wrecks that you see coming like to, with slightly lower stakes. It's, it's the same train wreck you see coming with like Tanya and Belinda. Right. Yeah. Where like Belinda is initially Belinda, who's like the head of the spa and Tanya, Jennifer Coolidge's character. Uh, whereas Belinda is like initially wisely like resistant to this woman and then sort of gets drawn in and allows herself to believe. And we're all watching it being like, no, do not hitch your wagon to this really erratic star here. And, uh, you know, and then when they, when the shoe drops, like we're not surprised, but still just 
gutting, you know, that it happens. And I think that what makes his Mike White's writing so captivating is that he genuinely, and maybe this is coming from, you know, watching a lot of reality TV, he does have genuine empathy for the monsters because they are people. And I think that from one perspective, Tanya's story is so sad and she's clearly a really broken woman. But like when she's just kind of toying with Belinda, how much is Belinda supposed to care about that? How much is she supposed to care about Rachel's plight about with her husband? Mm-hmm. You know, which, you know, I think we see that turn, obviously, with Belinda's just like, I don't have any. I don't, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I'm done. Um, but but obviously we, we still care about Rachel and what she's going through and what Patanya's going through. So I think that's what makes the show so well-rounded and interesting and challenging is that like people behave badly, but I kind of don't think anyone in in it is a bad person. And I think Mike White is really careful to, to shape the the show that way, you know? Yeah. I mean, I would be tempted to call um, Jake Lacey's character, Shane, Shane, a bad person. Um, But it was interesting in talking to Jake Lacey about Shane. He was like, you know, because one of the, you know, this is obviously, this is not the first time that Jake Lacey has done this, but it is sort of like the biggest example of him departing from this stable, nice boyfriend role that he has done in a lot of film and television, right? Like obvious child, high fidelity, like all this sort of stuff. Like you see Jake Lacey and you're like, ah, there's the guy you want your gal with or your dude with. And, Mm -hmm. um, uh he's you know he's he's lighting that on fire for this um but what was interesting to talk to him is he was like he thinks he is that guy <laughs> like he's like shane thinks he is a jake lacy character <laughs> and he thinks he is offering something nice for his wife and like you know he see he's like is it a crime to want to have sex with your wife and he was like you know and then jake lacy the human steps in and he's like it is when it's just about what you want and not what not paying attention to what your partner wants and all sort of stuff. Like he he acknowledges it, but like his, you know, this is true of anyone who plays even the worst villain. Like you have to have access, a humane access to their motivations. But I just think it's so interesting that he's just sort of like, yeah, Shane thinks he's a good guy. And I was like uh, trying to watch it through that lens. It's so, it's so tough because he's so frustrating, you know? And that's what makes that performance so good is that he's basically accessing the darker you know what might lie beneath those other affable characters you know yeah um and because there are moments when um shane is like friendly and thoughtful to an extent and like you know and i think at the end when they have their airport reunion i mean he is genuinely like happy and relieved and like you know i I think there is love there but there's all of this swaggering entitlement and again that bulldozing through the world and not really caring or thinking about it all like the consequences it has and then there but i think that that is humanized when we meet his mom and you're like well no wonder he turned out like this like how could he not this doting oblivious you know snob essentially um who has such a limited worldview in terms of like what people should do with their time i um i think that um that that empathy you discuss is so interesting because like so having watched the whole thing the way that i've started to describe the show to other people is like this is the tom and daisy buchanan show like this is the show meaning the characters from the great gatsby who's identifying you know characteristic other than their you know wealthy privilege is carelessness um and there's this you know not to be like 
basic English major about it, right? But there's, you know, famous quotes from Gatsby about like how they smashed up lives and just went on with theirs. And like, so that's, that's how I think of these White Lotus, though I have more, I have empathy for Daisy Buchanan, but I have more empathy for these people than I do for the Buchanans. But like this idea of you watch this, if you, if you rewatch the show from the beginning, knowing how it ends and you watch this ship of assholes, like come to shore and they're just about to like, wreck so many lives and 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 end one you know what i mean like what happens to kai what happens to belinda what happens to armand like all this stuff and not that they are like not that kai and armand are not like at least slightly complicit in in like or in armand's case more so complicit in like sort of what happens to them but it's just sort of like it's you're on a an upsetting collision course and part of that whole vibe is underlined of course by the fact that we start with this casket and I wanted to talk to you about that specifically because um, it is so – so something that I've heard from actually multiple showrunners and actually for a while since um, Riverdale was first announced and I was at the Television Critics Association press conference for that and um, the showrunner for Riverdale was saying that he was sh- trying to shop this show about Archie around and nobody wanted it and then it was someone's idea to put a dead body in the pilot. And then all of a sudden, like, people wanted Riverdale. <laughs> and so this idea that, like, a lot of networks want a dead body in the pilot so that there is that mystery that um, – and it's almost hard to get a show greenlit without a dead body in the pilot. I mean, especially if we think about what we've been watching on HBO, right? Like, Flight Attendant, Mare V's Down, The Undoing, all this sort of stuff, chasing the big little lies of it all, et cetera. And um, so my question is – do you think this dead body is in the pilot because HBO was like, Hey, Mike White, we'll let you do your show, but we need a dead body in the pilot. Or, or do you think, um, or does that not seem likely to you? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, the dead body in the pilot thing is interesting because that's, that's how Paw Patrol got made. I don't know if you, if you watch that <laughs> show, but, um, uh, I mean, they had, you know, they're the Paw Patrol. They had to investigate a murder. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think when I, when I first watched this show, I felt it, it did feel a little bit like, okay, this is how you hook people in. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you add a mystery that, you know, really the, the, the vast majority of the text of the show isn't concerned with that in the slightest, you know? Yeah. Um, and I rewatched a lot of it, you know, to, in, in prep to talk to you about it. And, it feels a little bit like the ending and what happens to Armand and like how it echoes it, you know, how, how it's kind of book book ends the series. Like it does make a little bit more sort of textual sense, I guess, but it still does feel like um, an adornment that, yeah, is definitely mandated by the needs of television executives and less than, I mean, cause I think Mike White would have just opened the show on the boat, you know, and maybe ended at the airport, but I don't think, you know, I don't know how important it was to him that Armand dies, I guess, at the end. Yeah, I mean, it, I think what feels most important about that is the fact that there's like zero zero repercussions, it seems, for Shane, right? Right, yeah. That Armand dies and we don't even see Shane like being interrogated by the police. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just as opposed to what happens to Kai, right? You know what I mean? And it's like... um or we presume happens to Kai since we don't see him again. But um, yeah, it's interesting to me. And and what I do like about this series that like, let's say HBO is like Mike White, you can't do the show. 
unless you put a dead body in the pilot. Um, and there's a mystery element. Let's say that that's the case. What I do enjoy about White Lotus, if that's the case, is that we don't come back to it until the very end, right? Yeah, and you, right. you, and if you were just watching this week to week, you might have even forgotten. I mean, <laughs> yeah, maybe not, but like you know, and, and I haven't seen as much like who's in the box, what's in the box conversation around White Lotus as there is usually around a show with like a mystery death, you know, in it because I. You know, he just doesn't he doesn't keep cutting back to the airport or you don't have like the big little lies sort of Greek chorus being interrogated in the police or, you know, or whatever to remind you that someone dies at the end. Yeah. Um, I'll admit that when John Grease's character showed up to to woo Jennifer Coolidge's character, Tanya, and he's like coughing, I'm like, oh, well, you have one bad cough, <laughs> like right. you're dead. Right. And uh, so that was a night nice, I, I got duped by that uh i i think also that you know it is setting up the tension or the, the question throughout the 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 series um of whether it's rachel you know and and so you're I like guess. you know like i i know i know it's not like totally hinted at or whatever but like you know he's a guy he's like i'm on i'm on my honeymoon he just was looking at a coffin he's alone at the airport and the other couple is like how was it and he's like you know kind of rude to them or whatever and it's like, oh, did 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 Rachel, did the wife, whoever this wife is that we have yet to meet, did she die? And I think I kind of, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. And I think that if that if that tension is supposed to be in there, the ultimate point is like, no, no, of course she's fine. It's just some hotel employee. Right. It's just some some guy who like was like a local. Like you know, I, I think that like, oh, we're we're, we're wondering and you know what's going to happen to Rachel, whatever. And it's like, no, 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 nothing. Like yeah. <laughs> you know, as is so often the case. And like literally nothing like, yeah. and that, I mean the, the Rachel, Rachel going back to Shane, I think is probably part of what put Tom and Daisy in my head. But like, yeah, I, I floated this idea of, of this being like the Tom and Daisy Buchanan show to someone. And he was like, who is the Nick? And I was like, maybe there isn't a Nick Carraway. Maybe there isn't. Is there a character in this show? Like if, if you have, if you have these people behaving badly, Usually in a show like this, there is some sort of like wry observer of the bad behavior who is like your audience proxy, right? And you would you would you would think that it would be like usually I feel like it would be like Sydney Sweeney's character, right? Like yeah. the the daughter or something like that. But like even even the young women who are like woke are so performatively woke. You know what I mean? And when push comes to shove that's not going to be the priority. And so you don't really have that person who's like observing all of this mess. I mean, there's like a Belinda kind of, or eventually like the Quinn arc, the fact yeah. that Quinn like stays is really interesting, but ultimately like we are sort of at sea with these people, uh, all making choices that were a little, uh, worried or very worried about you know yeah i mean i think with quinn you know i think he could have been the rye observer armand could have been the the rye observer but i think that in quinn's case what i like about that arc so much is that you know he's the kind of zonked out on his phone sleeping in the closet you know like just kind of like the weird black sheep of the family um and then kind of spins off on his own thing and becomes the only one who enjoys the trip you yeah. know who who's like oh this is a beautiful place and yeah. the, and these people are are so kind to me and 
what what an adventure to go out on this boat and you know row to another island like you know i i I like that it's the kind of tuned out you know kind of parody of a gen z or whatever kid who just sort of almost by accident stumbles into an experience into a kind of epiphany um and so i think he is the observer of the of the show but he's pointed in the opposite direction you know i i love that and i i also love the that um these numbing agents that the Gen Z characters have, whether it's the girls, their drugs or him with his electronics and, and pornography, et cetera, uh, that that's stripped away from them. Right. So then they have to just like deal with the world without that layer that they have uh, grown to be dependent on and, uh, and, and how each of them sort of interacts with that, that like ultimately uh, Olivia leans back towards her family right mm-hmm. and quinn sort of breaks free i hope he stays in Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it's interesting he does break free i mean i i think if you if you look at this show and and maybe it's i think it doesn't fit one-to-one obviously but like as a sort of metaphor for colonialism right like mm-hmm. these people come they ruin everything and then they leave you know um but some remnant stays in the form of quinn and I think it's good that he has like made these rowing friends and like, you know, it seems to be kind of found something kind of in the physical world, you know, versus the digital one to be passionate about and to be excited about. But like, there's still something invasive about his presence there and, and sort of not understanding of, you know, this isn't like a lark. This is a cultural thing. This is a tradition. This is part of, you know, the, the, this place's heritage. Um, and and to just kind of drop in because it's something cool and different and fun, like I I do wonder like how long does that fascination last and what happens when it you know goes away? It's true. I like you know just because it ends with him like paddling into the sunset doesn't mean that like Quinn's uh, you know mossbacker uh, nature won't right. <laughs> rise to the surface. Who knows? Um, I want to talk to you about Steve Zahn's character. Um, you know this is a great role um as mark right this is a great role for steve zahn an actor whom i love um and well it's not entirely different from what we've seen from him before i think it is just like a really sharp use of what he has done really well in the past and to give it just like a a lot more weight what did you think of of mark's whole arc here yeah, I mean it's a really thanks to White and to Zahn, like a really subtle but 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 clear, you know, portrait of a sort of like modern uh, white cis man in you know American in crisis, you know, with his you know his gender performance and and all of those expectations, and you know I, I think that Zahn, you know, who in the past was the kind of good times, the stoner, the party boy, whatever. With some variants, you know, um, you know, it's interesting to see him play a full grown-up who uh, is kind of d- not sure how he got there. You know, how he turned, how this became his life. You know, um, and I think that that's a, a great sort of evolution for an actor like Zahn, who has always been. I guess he's always like seemed his age, if that makes any sense. And it's like, well, now he's this age, and, and it really works for him to to play this this someone at this kind of crux point in their life. Yeah, it's interesting. I was trying to think about like he he did great work on Treme, and I was trying to think about like what's different from between that role and this role. And I think that, um, I think it is like that boyishness, that sort of like immaturity, 
has always been a part of the Zon ethos and 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 I love it. I love everything that he's ever done. He's always like a bright spot, right? But to put that in this like uh <laughs> I don't want to say emasculated because I don't believe I believe in that word, but like, you know, this this sort of beta to his wife. He uh, believes he's emasculated. Yeah, yeah. Ineffectual with his children sort of uh family man is is really interesting really interesting part for him and similarly like jennifer coolidge uh as tanya like i was i was reading this great interview well she jennifer coolidge gave a series of great interviews including one for vf but um you know where she was talking about how she was like resistant to do this afraid to do this because um you know because she had been like so depressed during pandemic which is extremely relatable content and mike white's like come let's go make a tv show and she's like oh what i don't want to um and but it is such like it's a perfect what a perfect present this is for a woman who has been wonderful again like steve zahn has been wonderful in everything she's done but has been like sort of a caricature whereas this is like a character for this wonderful comedic actress yeah, yeah. She's really brilliant on it. I mean, everyone's great. Um, but I think that, you know, it's such a thrill to watch an actor who has not been served such a, 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 a such a meal before to really tuck into it, you know? Yeah. And, and to have it work. So, I mean, the, the scene on the boat alone is like, should be taught at Juilliard. Like, it's just such a <laughs> beautiful, like, weird and, you know, but just so telling and well-rounded piece of acting. It's just so exciting to watch. Are you watching the new Gossip Girl or have you watched like all of it? I watched the first four to review it. And uh, once I filed a very negative review, I have, <laughs> didn't, didn't go back. Okay. So I haven't watched it because I like, I don't have a close association with the original. So it's like the whole, the whole hype of it kind of missed me, but <clears throat> an observation, I can't remember if it was in like one of our VF meetings or I saw it on Twitter or whatever, but someone was saying that like uh, the characters of Olivia and uh, Paula, these like very scary <laughs> teenage girls are sort of who the gossip girl teens wish they were i don't know who i just lifted that take from and i apologize because i can't source it but um would you agree with that like i i find them so scary until like things get more complicated but like initially so scary in such a very accurate way the way that like young women and their eye rolls can be so scary (laughs) um what what do you think of that yeah it's possible that I brought up that tweet on Little Gold Men. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't, Sorry. I don't remember, okay. but no, cause I don't know. Maybe we're just coming at the same thing from different directions, but yes, I think that's so funny. It's such a funny observation and it's true is that, you know, white somehow, I mean, I think it really, you know, these two actors are so good, um, that like it's kind of making fun of the kids of that generation of a certain sort of status, you know, but also, it, again, it has understanding about them and their concerns. And like, um, and I think that what's so scary about them isn't any sort of like overly manufactured bitchiness in the style of Gossip Girl, both old and new. And, and more just that like, they're smart and they have more of a future, I mean, you know, climate collapse notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. then you know these kind of older these more grown-up people like and they're just sort of aware of their like their power in the world i guess you know in and, and unafraid to sort of wield it a little bit like carelessly you know and i think that's what makes them scary not that they're sort of tossing out these kind of overly written zingers 
it's so it's so fun because it does it reminds me of like um the trend i think originated by not maybe not originated but definitely popularized by kevin williamson with dawson's creek uh and then scream and all this sort of there was this this like trend in the 90s of like teens talking like adults right uh and it was this whole thing and i love that these girls are sort of like paddling in that pool but like ultimately i mean especially with everything that happens with paula like these are also scared children do you know and um but they're like performative reading like everything about it it's just it's pitch perfect it's it's wonderful yeah and i think that you know to watch paula make such a catastrophic decision and mistake you know is such a good remind such a, a good way to remind us that like oh these are just kids and then olivia kind of you know going back under her mother's wing you know and 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 cozying up to the family again to be a kid to act like a kid again essentially like is a really nice portrait of people at that age who are you know sort of teetering on the brink of adulthood but still have a lot of childish tendencies you know well i mean that's true of people well into their 20s you know uh well not not all people but a lot you know certainly people of this sort of like economic station let's say um and i think that again he white afford and and the performances afford these characters a certain understanding um while also you know sort of eviscerating that a lot of what they they stand for and maybe even believe in yeah it's um sydney sweeney is a real standout for me she's so great on euphoria and she's great here and i find her terrifying i think she's one of the scariest people on television um all right let's talk about my real my real true standout though in all of this um is murray bartlett as armand um he's he's first build probably for alphabetical reasons buddy but but like i mean if if there is a central character in this ensemble i would i would say it's armand um he's the tim curry in this clue you know (laughs) yeah sure um but uh you know we're we're you and i are are i well i don't mean presume to speak for you but i will say i'm a longtime fan of him from looking from Mm -hmm. tales of the city etc like he's fantastic this is once again someone who i've long enjoyed given an even chewier vehicle to show off what he can do and i just think he's fantastic i love that you brought up tim curry because there there are moments when he's bustling through the hotel when you can like almost hear the clue music like that but like his his unctuousness and his hatred for the guests and like all of it is just and 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 you're tipped off from the start that that he is not just like a poor abused employee that we're going to be like rooting for by the way that he treats Jolene Purdy's character Lonnie who's only in the like opening um episode but mm-hmm. his carelessness around her is a good indicator for us that like things are going to be a little sideways with this character i didn't quite anticipate how sideways it was all gonna go but like um there you go but i i just i just loved every choice he made in this um what what are your armand feelings yeah i mean it's funny when i first heard about the show and i think that like hbo put out like a really brief little t or maybe it was like a clip that was part of their like coming in 2021 sizzle reel or whatever i was like oh murray bartlett is in that new mike white show like that's exciting for him. And then I saw, oh, he's just playing like the hotel clerk. So like, he'll probably just like pop up here and there, but like still good for him. I had no idea that he was going to have such a 
robust character to play over the course of six episodes. And, you know, it kind of with him and Coolidge, it was just so exciting to be like, wow, I've never seen these actors get something this substantial. I mean, looking, yes, was to some extent, but that was more the Jonathan Groff show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was just like really, and he's so good at it. And I think that like the stuff with Lonnie in the first episode, who again, we never see again, never hear anything about really, um, is showing like how infectious that sort of social class hierarchy stuff is he can get berated by the guests and he can berate her you know there is a sort of chain of command um and he is stuck in the middle of it and i think that what his ultimate journey is on this on the show is like kind of breaking out of it to some extent but also being driven insane by it you know yeah and and i think that it's just a really interesting way to look at like how how these kind of capitalist systems can like just really grind people into the dirt even people who aren't you know sort of on the lowest rung so to speak um so you know it is a tragedy obviously for him and his character um but i do think that something sort of not hopeful by any means but sort of enlightening does come out of it as soon as um shane grabbed the pineapple knife I was like, oh no, <laughs> is it Armand? Like, yeah. Uh, and I was devastated because, like, I, I, despite all the bad choices he made, um, and all the sort of vindictive, manipulative things he did, like, I was so rooting for that character, um, and, and did not have him even near the top of my, like, death pool list. Um, yeah. So there you go. Um, let us talk about uh, the fact that the show has already been given a second season and a new location with an all new cast, though I think Mike White said that uh, there might be like a reappearance of another character um, in in the new location. Um, it's funny. I was talking to someone who hadn't seen the finale and they were like, well, Armand can't die because... Um, like I know that they said no cast members are coming for the second season, but like they gotta they gotta transfer him to another hotel. And it's gotta be him. And I was like, oh no, nope. nope. He's definitely not in season two. That's the one person I know. Um, but we you know we did a little fun like thought experiment with the VF staff about like w- what we would want a season two to look like. Where would it be? Um, and I don't want to throw anyone under the bus with their guesses because it was all fun and games. But like I do feel like whatever it is there still needs to be that like racial component, like the whole thing of white people coming to Hawaii and watching like Luau performative Luau, like Polynesian cultural center esque stuff. Like it is, I feels like a big factor. And so like, yeah. I, there were some pitches I saw that it was just, it felt like very like this exotic locale. And I was like, yeah, but if it's all like white people or whatever, I don't know that that's as interesting. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, you know, when I my my pitch was to do it in the south of France at this hotel that where VF actually has its can party when when we have that, um, and and to sort of bring in like the tension in the south of France with you know white French people and people of like North African or you know Middle Eastern um, descent or you know Im- immigrants. Um, so you could add it there, but I think you're right. I also think that the thing about it is that like I'm sure that Mike White has a sort of globally expansive mind and is you know he's done been on Amazing Grace. He's traveled a lot. Um, but like, this is America, this is an American story, this first season in, in a really big way, I think. And I think to, to, 
you know, I, so I think it would be more likely like, I don't know, not Aspen, but like some other ritzy Miami, maybe, you know, I don't know. But I, I, I'm intrigued. And I think that I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, there is a definitive like, no, 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 it's a totally different story, totally different people. We're not trying to like do a big little eyes and just like tack on a second season because you love yeah. these characters. Yeah, exactly. And like, um, it, it reminds me a bit more of like Knives Out, where it's like, yeah, it's a it's a franchise he could start for himself. Where like, because because this has been so fun, and like we we keep saying he has cooked up so many meals for great performers that I can just see so many people clamoring to want to be in White Lotus season two. Like, oh, fully. Know. And I think yeah. it's, you know, also you think about like you know people. I've seen a lot of people be like, I had no idea Alexandra Daddario could do this because she's great on the show as well. Yeah. as rachel and it's like and you know the response has been well yeah but she hasn't been given materially like this so like all of these other actors who probably are like I-, I think i'm good but i haven't gotten an opportunity to show that are probably like banging his door down and being like please write something for me yeah exactly um the th- i want to talk about about we talked about like i don't know how how central like this idea of like white people going to hawaii uh which i i'm i am a white person who lived in hawaii for six months so i'm not like i'm not like uh, sitting too high on any horse but like um i lived on the north shore i know uh, you know a lot about sort of local resentment towards resorts encroaching and stuff like that and um i think that idea of like almost this idea of like paradise or whatever you want to call it but this idea of like inhibitions stripping away was really under underlined underscored to put a finer point on it by the score of this show uh the composer is uh cristobal tapia de Vere, and i don't think i've ever heard a tv score work harder to create an unsettling mood than this one do you have any like oh yeah score thoughts yeah, I mean it's really effective. It 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 sounds like birds in the trees kind of chirping. It sounds like maybe some sort of like human chant. It's like but but what whatever it's birds or people or something else more ethereal, like they are saying like something bad is coming and uh like the you know that something is in motion um and toward an inexorable sort of you know you know it turns out mur- killing um but yeah, it sets the tone so well. It also, I think, like, it helps offset what could be, you know, sort of interesting, funny, but like maybe familiar satire. It adds that extra layer of like deeper existential meaning, which I think, um, you know, is oftentimes what a good score should do. Um, in the in this great interview with the LA Times, Mike White uh, said that he wanted music that makes you feel like there's going to be some kind of human sacrifice at some point. The goal was a feeling of tropical anxiety. <laughs> it's like, yep, nailed it. There's one over, um, like uh, maybe it happened over every episode's credits, but I think it's a penultimate episode. I let the credits play for whatever reason. And uh, like the score turned into like, panting and moaning like sexual panting and moaning and i was like i was like is there a end of credit scene coming i was like nope it is just that's just the score that's just what's happening in the background of the credits of this episode and it's uh yeah it's wild it's 
That's yeah. a truly wild vibe. I, I did want to circle back to Alexandra Daddario's character, Rachel. Uh, and I, I had a question for you, which is, you know, you and I had seen the screeners for White Lotus already, but the, and it wasn't a show that was an immediate, like people were immediately talking about it when it debuted, but it cut like, got traction over the weeks. That's the same thing. Ha- that happens all the time with HBO. The Undoing, Mare of Easttown, Flight Attendant. Like you all, you see uptick in the week to week sort of uh, conversation. Um, but I was wondering if you think putting a journalist in your show is a good way to get journalists talking about your show on Twitter. What do you think? <laughs> sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't hurt. Um, and that scene between Rachel and Nicole is just so, Ugh. just blistering. I mean, it's just so horrifying um and i love that he did it that way you know like it because it shows like because i think you're supposed to disagree with both of them and agree with both of them and like rachel's work is kind of shoddy but also nicole shouldn't be so nasty about it like you know because of what the the media and the state of the media industry you know all that stuff um it just like it seemed to speak so plainly to a, a kind of real truth um in a way that we don't often see and so yeah of course like people in media like ourselves are going to be like start banging the drum that much louder for for the series it's just like that's that's what i saw first happening on twitter was like people talking about rachel that scene with nicole or like the way that the uh you know paula and olivia made her feel and all sorts of stuff like that and they're like um i just thought i was like that's that's clever i don't i don't know if it's intentional but like pro tip if you want some, if you want journalists to talk about your show, put a journalist in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> put it in like the poor girl is just doing like a listicle, <laughs> and, and Connie Britton's character just like rips into her. You're like, this is a a repurposed listicle. What the hell? Anyway, um, yeah, I, I just love that. All right, anything else you want to say about this season of television? I don't think so. Oh, well, I just wanted to highlight I, maybe one of my my favorite li- single line mm. in the show when Olivia is like revealing to Paula that she knows what the whole scheme with Kai was. And she's like, my, um, she was like someone, something bad could, my mom could have gotten hurt. Something bad could have happened. And Paula starts crying and says, something bad did happen. And I think that sort of like awareness that Paula now has to carry back into the world that Olivia doesn't seem to give a shit about, um, is another really a big part of what makes this show so sad, you know? Um, but like expressed in a way that I feel like is subtle and like teenagers speak. And, you know, so I, I thought that that scene was really great. Yeah. Um, and like Paula dropping, uh, pulling an old Titanic and dropping the necklace that he gave her in the ocean, just being like, cause there's, I didn't expect her to, because that's not what the show I'm watching, but I, but there was a part of me that was just like, Paula, you can help fix this. And she's just like, that's just not something like she just scoots herself back across the line over on the side of privilege. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. the choice she makes. And I th- but I think it also illustrates, you know, a sort of an impossible tension for, uh, you know, people of color uh, in any situation in life, but certainly in those positions of privilege where it's like you're, you're conscious of what so I think it's like double consciousness or something like, you know, like. And at a certain point, what can she do? She's only a, she's really a kid, you know. Um, and so I think that the show really illustrates well that um, really impossible position that she's in. I mean, I, I want to have 
as as much empathy for her as you do and i and i do and and when you're a kid you don't have the full picture but i think what's true is that if she were to say something like with shane nothing would really happen to her right like the Mossbackers aren't going to like press any charges against her and stuff like that and it's like a scandal that will follow her briefly right and then not really touch her but she does have the ability in that in that moment to help kai enormously and chooses not to right yeah and and she's able to choose not to because she has the means to get on a plane and leave you know yep yep exactly um all right anything else you want to say talk about uh no just people go watch beatrice at dinner go watch uh year of the dog watch watch enlightened Watch Enlightened, watch absolutely. Oh, I guess, yeah, that's the last thing I want to talk about. Someone, um, I think it was Dan Feinberg, uh, said on, was saying something on Twitter about how, like, because Enlightened is such an, has long been this sort of, like, thing among TV critics where they're like, ugh, you people don't understand what you threw away in Enlightened, right? It's just this sort of, like, thing that TV critics like to point to is, like, we knew this was special and audiences didn't uh, appreciate it. And then it was gone. Um, and I will, I don't love enlightened as much as some people love enlightened uh, though. Laura Dern is always a joy to watch. Um, but enlightened had a little bit more of like people behaving badly in a way that like was more painful for me to watch. Yeah. I don't, I mm-hmm. don't know um, why that there's a distinction, but I think my favorite parts of Enlightened were the were the poignant parts. You know, the episode that's all about the mom, the episode where mm-hmm. she goes on the um, kayaking trip, yeah. um, and and the r- more ruminative things. And I think that White, you know, in his writing, and in, in this case, in, in White Lotus direction, um, has you know maybe sort of softened a little bit. He still has that like absolute ability to like pierce someone instantly, you know, um, yes. but and totally, um, but. He also, you know, has this sort of older, wearier, more humane side that we're, you know, because his earlier films were really spiky, you know, and and people were almost kind of sociopathic. And you could argue there's sociopathy in this show, too. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I like the sort of more like the softer side of, of Mike White. There's that. And there's so Enlightened came out, uh, debuted a decade ago. Oh, my October, God. Ugh. October 2011. Uh, and Laura Dern, uh, you know, she won a Golden Globe uh, for it. So it's not like it was a completely overlooked. And it got two seasons. So, like, it's not it's not like it was nothing. But. Uh, and it really, like, launched this this the, the next phase of her career that, where yes. she's in now, you know. Yeah, exactly. Totally. But uh, I will say that something that Dan feinberg was saying is he was like i think i think i think i agree with you that there is some soft a little bit more empathy or soft softness to what mike white is doing here but i think also we as a society capital s are more uh more willing to embrace a dimmer view of humanity or a grimmer view of humanity Mm -hmm. um more willing to go down the road of of unlikable characters um or find that empathy for people who are doing unlikable things, I guess, um, is a better way to put it. Um, so I, I think it does sort of speak to how the audience POV has shifted. And that, that has to do with like 
uh, I don't know, <laughs> we survived the Trump administration. Like, you know, like our faith, our faith in humanity has been recently extremely shaken by a number of things. And so I think this idea of like, well, yeah, of course, everyone's going to behave badly. That's what that's what we're seeing every day all the time now. Uh, so and it was always there. We're just maybe a little bit more aware of it. Yeah. Um, but at least we can find something to laugh about while while we're watching it, I suppose. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, Mike White, you know, kind of coming around the same time as like Neil LeBute and Todd Solondz. And it was like in the, you know, the early mid nineties and it was like, oh my God, these movies, they're so mean. Like, you know, what, what a, what a shock. Like it's, it's the talk of Sundance, you know? And then that kind of became de rigueur. And then, then, and now we're in this, you know, phase of, I don't know, American culture. And so it doesn't seem, it's not, it's not shocking anymore. Um, But what is so heartening about the White Lotus is that a talent like Mike White, like is able to evolve and, you know, th- that many years after Chuck and Buck is able to say, like, I've been watching and paying, I've been that observer, and here's what I've kind of assessed, you know, <laughs> of the last few years. And I think that he does it so well is is really a thrill. Chuck and Buck is a real, real ride. Yeah. Um. All right. So watch, watch Beatrice at dinner. Watch, watch Enlightened. Uh, watch Nine Perfect Strangers with us, which is like, uh, to preview Nine Perfect Strangers, if you haven't heard about it. Um, it is, uh, based on another Leanne Moriarty book. She wrote, uh, the undoing and also big little lies. Um, and, uh, it's set in Australia where Nicole Kidman with a truly outrageous Russian accent. It's set Um, in California. It was filmed in Australia. And oh, it's, it's but, California? but it's supposed to be California and it does not look like California. It looks like Australia because that's where it was filmed. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I was like so yeah. convinced the entire time yeah. that they had like flown to us. Okay. Well, great stuff. Well, I suppose, yeah, Melissa McCarthy's character drove there. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> yeah, uh, so- well, it's a long drive. <laughs> All right, set in California, filmed in Australia, looks like Australia. Uh, great cast, uh, and you know it's a, it's about a bunch of people who, quote unquote, broken people who go to this wellness spa looking for um, enlightenment or health or healing. And uh, Nicole Kidman plays this guru, and with some questionable means to help them uh, achieve that goal. So that that is that is the gist of that show. So we will be talking about that. Um, like I said, it's based on a book, so you can read all about it if you want if you want to know what's going to happen you can read all about it there are some uh added twists and turns in this adaptation and uh i i think it's i think it's interesting but it is it is uh unfortunate i think for that show that it is debuting sort of in the shadow of white lotus i will say because they're very they're they're fairly close in certain aspects and wildly different in other aspects so there you go uh so we will be back to talk about that in about two weeks. Uh, Richard, until then, where can folks find you? Uh, I'm trying to scout the new hotel for season two. I mean, no <laughs> one's asked me to do it, but I just figured why not? Uh, so on my travels, I'll be tweeting from Ryla's and filing to VF.com. Uh, where will you be until you and Anthony talk about what if? Yeah, we'll be back next week uh, with Anthony to talk about what if. Uh, you can find me on VF.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Uh, Anthony has a great uh, piece going up with the uh, creators of What If, uh, so you can get prepared reading about that. And uh, yeah, we'll see you back here in the feed. Uh, do not go to on any Hawaiian vacations. That's that's my recommendation. Stay home. So. Yeah. Delta's, Delta's searching. Stay home. All right. Bye.